0: Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to participate in your sovereign plan, your will, for bringing us to faith in Christ. Uh, You deserve all the glory for such. I pray for our our time tonight as we look over uh, the history of the church and ask that you be glorified in our study of that history. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Reminder to turn your phones off. All right, a list of people that uh, we've looked at in the past. Um, I've added a few just to the list in the last coming weeks Desiderius Erasmus, Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, that's Luther's good buddy, right hand man, Orwig Zwingli, John Calvin, John Knox, Martin Bucer, Hugh Latimer, William Tyndale, Henry VIII, Thomas Cranmer, John Rogers, Heinrich Bullinger. You've heard of some of these, some of these you've never heard of. Tonight we'll look at and. Some of you weren't looking, you don't know what happened, and I'm not going to read it. <laughs> John Knox isn't this week, I don't know how that made it on there. After the Diet of Worms, or Diet of Worms, remember it's an assembly of, of German nobles come together. After this diet this assembly in 1521 Luther was holed up in the the castle at Wartburg translating the Greek New Testament into German last week I told you it was two years because my sources say two years Cheryl said she was looking around she said it wasn't two years <laughs> so it's very it, people say at various times it was he, he was it was it couldn't have been two years because the diet of worms was 21 and he released it in 1522 so uh, it looks like it was about 11 months so once again she wins During that time, there was the peasant revolt uh, while he was holed up at Wartburg, a division between Luther and Erasmus and the humanists, and the ever-growing pressure from Charles V, who was the emperor at that time, a young man, and other Catholic princes and Protestants. All of this led to the Confession of Augsburg, by the way, written out by Luther's good buddy, Philip Melanchthon, in which the main Protestant princes declared and expounded their faith. So you can get a copy of the Augsburg Confession today and uh, see what, uh, what they were expounding, what Luther's theology was, and how Melanchthon put it. When a, group, uh, when a Roman Catholic prince outlawed Lutheranism in his territory, one group of Lutherans protested so harshly that they were dubbed Protestants because they protested things like indulgences, papal authority, which is the pope, Transubstantiation, if you don't know what that is, uh, Catholics believe that when you go to the Mass, you partake of the bread. And the bread, after you eat it, for, after you swallow it, it becomes the body of Jesus. The priest takes the, the, the wine, which is the blood. You don't get to do that. That becomes Jesus' blood. So Jesus' body inside of you, that bread, becomes his body. The blood... That's all happens when you go down to the front of Catholic Church. They put on your tongue, they drink, and that's Jesus being re sacrificed. He's dying again for your sins. That's why you go to Mass. You go to Mass because you know you're a sinner. You go re sacrifice Jesus' body every day, and they spoke out against, they protested against this transubstantiation. Yeah, Steve, what's that? I mean, don't they think cannibalism is a bad thing? I can't speak for any of that. I'm just. My goal here is to tell you here's what was going on, not to, not to comment on what maybe they might have thought. But, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, just re-sacrificing Jesus is ridiculous. Jesus died once and for all. And we have that by faith, not by going to a mass. The Protestants also, protesting against the Catholic Church, insisted on Scripture alone and faith alone in Christ alone. So they protested the Catholic Church that didn't believe those things. Though Luther died in 1546, as the threat of war increased, the Protestant princes organized, You got this is a great word, the League of Schmalkald, with the purpose of defending themselves against Catholic aggression. After long years of political and armed conflict, the peace of Augsburg was finally reached in 1555, whereby Protestant princes were guaranteed the right to determine their own religion. That's important. Yeah, care. quickly. I can't speak to all that, they just, uh, uh, it's, I can't, I, I don't know, you can ask, I have asked Catholics, and so I'm not going to give you the, they know, none of them give the same answer. Okay. I just if you yeah, I mean, I, I've heard answers, but I don't know, yeah. and since I'm recorded, I have I have learned that when I say something, it's recorded, and it's heard, somebody calls in and says something bad. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I know that Kristen is going to do it, we're going to get way off here, <laughs> but I'm going to let you answer, Christian. go ahead. spoken like a once orthodox Catholic yeah. i 've heard different, but that 's the way it, uh, that was beautiful so we 're going to meet sometimes you 'll see his name listed as Huldrich or Ulrich Zwingli and the Swiss Reformation. Remember the Reformation in um, what we 've talked about with Luther's happening in Germany. Um, Zwingli didn't hear about it, say, I think we'll get something going on here. This was simultaneous, very simultaneous. And all of it comes as a result of what we looked at a couple weeks ago, is when Desiderius Erasmus put the first Greek New Testament together. This Greek New Testament is now being read, and scholars like Zwingli, Luther, are reading it, John Calvin, they're reading it and they're going, wait a minute. If Jesus, if, if the, when they knew the New Testament was inspired in Greek, not in Latin, if this is what it says, then what's going on in the Latin Vulgate is not the real Word of God. And so you've got this guy over here. He starts reading the Bible too. All of it, we said the gates were open through uh, Erasmus's Greek New Testament. This is in Zurich, Switzerland. Zwingli was a parish priest in Glarus in 1506 where he lived for 10 years in immorality. He was not a moral um, monk or priest as Luther had been. He discovered the gospel from the scriptures. Then he began to preach verse by verse through Matthew. And the people began to be saved as a result of expository Bible preaching. Simple. Here's what the Bible says, here's what the Bible means, here's what we do with it. This is a copy of his Greek New Testament, since they didn't have Xerox machines. He was writing it himself. Uh, Zwingli learned the gospel by studying Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And this is an image of a handwritten copy of Paul's epistles, which is Wingley made. But what he did with his own copy of the Scripture was that he, wrote the, he took the Greek, and then he wrote his own Latin version out beside it. He wasn't using the Latin Vulgate. He took that Greek, and he was putting that Greek and writing it into his own Latin and seeing all the things that stood out. One of the main things was um, in Matthew 4.17 where Jesus says repent and believe, uh, the Latin version says do penance. Do penance. And so Catholics today do penance. You you do these things to show that you're sorry for what you did. And then you, you say a couple of Hail Marys and a couple of Our Fathers and give some indulgences. You do penance. Well, the Greek word is just repent, which means to turn away, change your mind. That that These are the things that change everything in the Bible. His reform... Uh, His method of reform was more radical than Luther's, and so he is often called a radical reformer, and yet there were some far more radical than him that we're to look at tonight. But his method was a little bit more radical than Luther's. Zwingli said that we should wipe the slate clean and practice only what we find commanded in the Bible. Does that sound good to you? Let's get rid of everything and only what we see commanded in the Bible. You shake your heads on that, but that would get you in a lot of trouble if that's what you do. Only what's commanded in the Bible. I mean, all of us are going to... We can't go home tonight in our cars. We need to turn the air conditioners off. That's how crazy it gets when this is all you do. Yeah. All of a sudden, you've got a convert back there to Lutheranism. <laughs> Zwingli's interest was primarily in returning to the original sources of Christianity, and therefore he rejected all that was not to be found in the New Testament. Think about that. We're going to reject everything that we don't find in the New Testament. He, was, uh, he didn't say that. Somebody said, including the Old Testament? No, he knew the difference between the two. Um, and I couldn't speak to that with any degree of accuracy, but it was just the New Testament. He was also a fiery patriot who opposed the practice of Swiss soldiers serving abroad as mercenaries, urging Swiss Protestants to defend their faith and freedom by military means. Well, you could find that in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua, uh, fight, take up arms, kill those who are opposing you. And he would die on the battlefield in 1531. Um, He died early. Luther didn't like Zwingli. Uh, They spoke at length, and when he died, Luther essentially said, good, he deserved it. Essentially. Now those aren't his, I'm not quoting him. It's pretty cold how he said it. His radical reformation, he said if the Bible didn't permit it, it was sin. Luther, however, said if the Bible didn't forbid it, it was permitted. Now that is what we do here. You do that without realizing it. If the Bible doesn't forbid something, then we believe it's permitted. He wanted to start, as Wingley, with a clean slate and build his church only on what was in the Bible and not try to fix the Catholic Church. Let's just get out and... We'll start with, Celine, clean, Celine with a clean slate, start it over, which he tried to do. He spoke against not eating meat at Lent. And If you grew up Catholic, you, you couldn't eat meat on Fridays, especially during Lent, which is just absolutely, I, always, I can't stop, I can't not stop and just make a sarcastic remark about how stupid that is. <laughs> like God is actually concerned that we can't or don't eat meat. Um, he, he spoke out against that. Or indulgences, He spoke out against indulgences. And celibacy, that's priests not being able to marry. He said he lived in immorality because I'm a man. And men want to be with women. And I want to be married, can't be married. And so they. Um, he, he, that's why he lived in immorality. And prayers to marry. He wasn't going to do any of that. And he spoke out against it quite harshly. So now we have a disputation. Uh, you've got Zwingli who's high in Zurich. And what are we going to do? He's in Zurich. We've got to, uh, the townsfolk and the powers that be um, have to have some sort of a discussion. The city council of Zurich where Zwingli was pastor when it was uneasy about Zwingli's reforms, as you might imagine. They arranged a, dis- a disputation between Zwingli and a representative of the Catholic bishop. A key facet of the debate centered on whether church tradition should be normative for contemporary church worship and doctrine. So all the traditions. Now, I broke away from the Baptist church. And after researching churches when I was about 19 years old, and I thought, there's a lot of garbage going on in churches. One of the things that bugged the heck out of me was to watch a preacher walk up to the to the pulpit, piddle around in his Bible, put a piece of notes here, a piece of notes there, kind of get there. Him and haw for the first 10 minutes. Tell dumb stories and jokes. And then finally get into what he called a sermon 15 minutes later. And then apologize for saying, I don't have enough time. I hated that. I hated the singing of songs over, over, over and over, sit down and pray, sing another song. Now you got somebody singing a solo, and now two more songs, and now we're going to kneel and pray, and then the hemming and hawing of the pastor, and then enough time at the end for an altar call. I loathed it. That's why we don't have any of that stuff here. Never will. It's a time you get people for one hour a week, maybe one hour a week. Give them as much as God's Word as you possibly can and get rid of all the garbage. So I get where he was. Let's get rid of all the traditions. Now, I just spoke about what I experienced in the Baptist church. Some of you are, are maybe you're more traditional Lutheran or, or uh, Presbyterian or even Catholics. You know what I'm talking about. And people come here, and one guy said, without an, an altar call to our church, he said, how can anyone get saved? I've been more than one person asked that. How can people get saved without an altar call? Like you have to offer a time where people come down the aisle, and that's the only time they can get saved. The gospel still, you can be saved in your seat walking forward newsflash that doesn't do anything uh, in fact most of the time it gives the people in the audience a false understanding that oh look old joe schmo we've been praying for him looks like he walked down the front he must be a christian now how many people walk to the front and tell the pastor they want to be a christian and then they try to share the gospel and they can't many they were just tugged down there by the eighth verse of just as i am <laughs> all right i'm off of my high horse now i'll move back to the slideshow This is what Zwingli was after. The city council sided with Zwingli and ordered that priests in Zurich preach nothing with the Bible. That's pretty good. The reaction to the first disputation, where in the Bible do we find things like the government appointing preachers to churches? Can you imagine that? Where do we find in the Bible the government collecting taxes to support monks? This is all happening. This is what Zwingli is speaking out against. Where do we find in the Bible that we need to bow and ven- bow to and venerate images? Where do we find in the Bible the re-sacrificing of Christ in the mass and the transubstantiation? Zwingla's disciples rose up against such non-biblical practices, and when they spoke at the first disputation, the city council said, you're right. So they ordered the priest to preach just the Bible. Second disputation arose, however. Since the city council did not foresee the Bible doing such transformation, They didn't know things were going to change so drastically. They called a second disputation to debate these issues. At this debate, they could not convince the city council that the mass was an abomination and that the churches should stop performing the mass. So things changed, and the city council went, this is not quite right. We're not sure about this. Let's talk about it again, and so now they're going to reinstitute the mass. Zwingli opted to continue with the mass, waiting for God to convict the city council. Now, mind you, and I've got a couple of sides to to reinforce this later tonight, but make sure that you note that what's going on in in church history here has nothing to do with the United States of America. There is no separation of church and state. You and I can barely get that through our thick skulls. There is no separation of church and state. The state and the church are one. What the state believes, that is the church. And what the state says to do, you do. If you disobey a law of the Bible, you die. You die. You could suffer the death penalty at the hands of the state. There is no separation. So the city council is saying, we're going forward with the Mass. Zwingli is a priest, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to comply. Have to. He was a radical reformer, but he was still going with the city council. Felt that it was God's will to do so. But not all agreed with Zwingli, saying that it was a sin to continue just because the government didn't see the truth. Now, that's more American than anything. That's us. Uh, We ain't doing that. The government doesn't know. That was unheard of in these days. This is radically new, this idea. These disciples broke with Zwingli and went out on their own. And I will say, they are the first Baptists. It is to their detriment. I think what they did was great, but they're going to suffer the ultimate cost for it. So, here's the side I was talking about. Try to follow. In the days of the Reformation, that's the 1600s, 15 and 1600s, and the centuries prior... The notion of a government without an official sponsored religion was alien to everyone. Since the days of Constantine, the church was wedded to the Roman government. Remember, Constantine becomes a Christian. He's the Roman emperor. And because he's a Christian, all pagan religions are outlawed. We are all Christians. Whether you're saved or not, you're a Christian. That's what's called Christendom. Not a kingdom, but Christendom. We're all that way, saved or unsaved. Christian politicians considered it necessary that there be only one version of Christianity in their realm, as the Reformation unfolded. So that wasn't always the case, but as the Reformation unfolded, remember Luther is in Saxony, where uh, the city of Wittenberg is. And the head of that government is Frederick the Wise. Frederick the Wise likes Luther. So Lutheranism is, kind of by the boundaries of Saxony, that's Lutheranism. And today, Germany, by and large, is a Lutheran country, even Even today, in both Luther's Saxony and Zwingli's Zurich, that's Switzerland, the Protestant church is allied with the secular government, believing that only their church should be allowed to exist in their territory. So Zurich is going to have their own version of, of the Reformation, Christianity. Saxony has its own version, and it's going to spread to different places. It's just going to be off a little bit, tweaked here and there, a couple of different ideas, kind of like our denominations are today. So it was the local government who protected what was considered to be the true church in that region, whatever that region was. Regulating the church's worship. Remember this, this is the government. They're still regulating in the Protestant Reformation. Regulating the church's worship and supporting its, ministering, its ministers through taxes. That's why earlier, Zwingli had to back down. The city council said, we'll go this far, but we're going to still celebrate the mass. Deal with it. That's the law. All the citizens, whether saved or unsaved, were considered part of the government church. And that government protected its citizens. Practice your religion this way. If it wasn't Protestant at all, then it's purely Catholic. The government made certain that all babies were baptized, an act that initiated them into a covenant relationship with one territorial church. Where in the Bible do you see any infant ever baptized? And it is practiced throughout Protestant churches, then and now, and believe me, in our Baptist way of doing but baptisms to try to talk a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, a Methodist out of their, or just having to get them rebaptized? Okay. That's between you and God. And many, I'll wait, I'll wait, and they finally warm up to it. I want to be baptized as an adult. I want people to know that this is my decision, not my parents. I don't think it's heretical, but it's what people hold on to it very tightly, like their relationship with their mama. Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and John Knox all taught that the government should punish, exile, and even execute those who opposed the state church. Note that. So the birth of the Anabaptists. Luther was a reformer in Germany, as I said earlier. John Calvin became a reformer in Geneva, Switzerland. Zwingli was a reformer in Zurich, Switzerland. Felix Felix Manns and Conrad Grebel... Themselves, they were students of Zwingli, with Zwingli's movement. They began studying the Bible on their own in Zurich, and they would become what we call today radical reformers, breaking from the previously mentioned magisterial reformers. So a magisterial reformer is going to be Martin Luther, John Knox, the guys that stayed within the state government. The radical reformers are going to say, we want a separation of church and state. That's a radical reformer. Felix Manns and Conrad Grable are going to be your two names to know. Here they are. Good looking guys, aren't they? Pretty good pictures. huh? These two radical reformers saw a clear separation of government and church in the Bible. And since no infant was baptized in the New Testament, they rejected infant baptism, saying one may be part of the state and yet not a member of Christ's church. Think about that. That's true. You can be part of the state. We're born. The moment you're born, you have a birth certificate, you are part of the state. Are you part of the church? You are, if you get christened, as a baby, have water poured over your head, you're now part of the church. Well, these guys came along and said, that's not in the Bible. And we don't need to be bringing any unbelievers, even though they're they're infants, into the church and calling them Christians. Or waiting for them to, we'll wait for them. And that's why you go through confirmation classes, what, age 11, 12, 13. You go through those classes and somehow these churches that don't even know Christ confirm that you're a Christian at age 12. And so that means that your baptism at eight days old is now true. Now, I, again, I don't mean to be ugly, but where is any of that in the Bible? And Many of you grew up that way. That's, that's what your background is. You're sitting there going, oh, gosh, he knows all about me. It's just it's Protestant churches. Manns and, and Grable, however, said it's not in the Bible. And so this is a radical idea. So we look at the apostolic versus reformed churches. All over Christendom, quote unquote, every newborn child was baptized and considered a member of the church. Thus, the church and society were identical since everyone was part of the church. Everyone. Since the days of Constantine. Yet in the New Testament, the church was a fellowship of the few. A company of true believers committed to live and die for their Lord. This is how the Anabaptists believed that it should be. Are they they right? They're spot on. This is what we see. These are people reading the New Testament. So, this first baptismal disputation, the city council ordered a public disputation on baptism to decide the issue. The result was that the city council ordered the parents to surrender their infants for baptism. Didn't go well for the Anabaptists. Anabaptist means to be rebaptized, and so that's what they—that's why they're called that. It was a—it was a slur. Uh, you're you're rebaptizers, and so. The discussion on this said, no, we want all our babies to be baptized. That's just too radical. It was too radical then. It's too radical for some even today. So a division in the Zurich church arose, and even Zwingli opposed Grable and Manns. No, guys, we need to stay. Stay under the city council. They'll come along later. We'll get them later. But right now, we need to stay under them. Grable and Manns said, no, we're not going to. All the parents were given one week to baptize their babies. That's those who were who didn't see it in the Bible, didn't want to baptize him. And those who refused would be banished from the city at best. In January 1525, uh, George uh, Kajacob, he's called the man in the blue coat. In fact, when you read about him in church history, he's named George Blue Rock. George Blue Rock, because Blue Rock just means blue coat. Hey, that guy over there in the blue jacket. (laughs) Isn't that great? So he's known, Would you ever come across this guy, his name is George Blue Rock, but his name is really George Kajacob. He told Felix Manns, baptize me, note this, January in Zurich, 1525. <laughs> told Manns, baptize me with the true Christian baptism upon my faith. And this is right after the city council has said, baptize those babies. No one is to be baptized but babies, or you'll either be banished from the city or killed. And thus the Baptists were born. This is the birth of the Baptist, George Blue Rock, or George Kajakop. The next day, many of them began an itinerant ministry in and around Zurich, preaching their Baptist faith and baptizing converts. And they baptized hundreds. Hundreds were baptized and converted to this faith, Grable and Mans, Baptists. The city council called another disputation. It's more of a trial and a sentencing. And Anabaptists were sent to prison with bread and water until they recanted. Here's the... um, one of the towers there, the tower that they were convicted in, and that's just a picture from the 1800s. Don't have any from the 1600s or 1525, but there's a drawing there on the, in the middle of the disputation. Uh, so they're banished. You can't do what you're doing. You can't go around and tell people, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. You can't do that. You'll go to prison. The Anabaptists escaped and continued preaching and baptizing in and around Zurich. These people have no, no fear. The city council decreed that anyone practicing anabaptism was now going to be guilty of death. And so the Swiss Brethren eventually became known as Anabaptists, which means again baptizers. These Swiss Brethren, these are going to be the brothers in Switzerland under Oryx Wingley, uh, again baptizers, Anabaptists. Uh, Conrad Grable died of the plague soon thereafter. Felix Manns and many other Anabaptist leaders were persecuted and executed, not only by Roman Catholic leaders, but by their fellow Protestants. That's how radical it was that Lutherans and the Zwinglians who were heading the Reformation in their respective cities were so against what Grable and Manns were doing. Things that you and I do today. They, it wasn't just the Catholics against them, they killed them. Just a drawing of Felix Manns. Um, in fact, if you see there that uh, the first picture on the right is a drawing of the, uh, all the people in the boat. Um, Manns is on the far right, just right off the dock next to the little house. Uh, he has his knees tied, and they're going to pull the boat off the back, and he's just going to fall backwards and drown. They bound his hands and feet and pulled him off the edge of a fisherman's hut into the river, essentially saying, you like water? And so that's how many Baptists died. Baptists died by drowning. So many, uh, thousands died by drowning for their beliefs that that a a Christian should be baptized upon the profession of his his or her faith. January 5th, 1527. He probably froze to death before he drowned in January in Zurich. So the birth of the Baptists. As banished Christians, they left for neighboring Zolikon and grew in large numbers. Baptists were later declared heretical in 1529. Later, some 5,000 Baptists were put to death. Again, simply for baptizing believers, failing to baptize their children. Some among the Anabaptists came to believe that the end was at hand. leading. And you would think that at this point. They've got the Bible. They understand the Bible. No one else is, is abiding by it. So they believe they're, they're in the end times. And this led to even more uh, radical positions. Some even abandoned their pacifism, which means they don't believe in war. And they set about establishing the kingdom of God by a force of arms. This is never a good idea. In Munster, radical Anabaptists took power, expelled the bishop, and set up a theocracy, declaring it the new Jerusalem. It fizzled, did not work. Um, but this is what happens when you even, even people that try to be biblical in their radical nature, go outside of the Bible. And just Satan has so many tools, so many tools, even for well-meaning people. Menno Simons comes on the scene. Some Baptists fled to Moravia. Uh, They were later organized by a man named Menno Simons in Holland. Uh, Simons attempted to observe strictly every pattern found in the New Testament. Um, His heirs today are known as Mennonites, and they are still around. They are pacifists, meaning they do not believe in war. They live communally, and they are ruled congregationally. Uh, though persecuted in Europe, the Baptists came to America in the 1600s, and their direct descendants are the Amish and the Mennonites. The Baptists in general flourished in the separation of church and state in the United States of America. Nowhere else. And they were Calvinistic in their doctrine and practice. And you're thinking, if you're a Baptist, you're going, what? Yeah, Early Baptists were all Calvinistic, because they were Biblical. Only later, when they moved outside of a biblical uh, worldview, did they become predominantly Arminian in thought. Now mind you, Arminian is not the same as Armenian. The difference between the I and the E, the way you pronounce it, you know, I always tell you, don't call me don't tell me you're reading Revelations. I don't even know what that book is. I know what the book of Revelation is. Don't tell me you're reading the book of Roman. I don't know what that book is. It's Romans, right? <laughs> And the same is true when you're talking about Armenians. If you're talking about Armenians, I think you're talking about the people in the country right next to Turkey. Armenians is a belief system. Armenians are a people. Yeah, Chris? To you? Yeah, I am coming to that. For sure. And they're all they're pretty much related. Very related. close. Came out of the same era. <laughs> so the question becomes, Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, were they friends or foes? Now I've told you they weren't Friends, but that wasn't because of Zwingli, it was because of Luther. Um, They agreed on everything but one thing. Uh, Zwinglians tended to strip away more traditional symbols of the Roman Church Uh, things like candles, statues, music, and pictures. Remember how much Luther loved music? Uh, Later in England, uh, men were called this spirit Puritanism. It wasn't a good word, wasn't a good word for them, you Puritans. Today it's not a good word either, although it's good people. want to purify everything. Let's get rid of all the junk and just purify uh, the faith and go back to the Bible. They also tended to be more legalistic, Zwinglians, because, hey, it's not the Bible. You know, I have, I've had people call me and say uh, that I've never heard of, or they'll write me a, a note, email on the Internet, or find my email address and go, uh, please explain to me why you, why you cease to be biblical. <laughs> I'm sorry, where am I unbiblical? Pfft. wrong move, don't ever do that because I get 10 pages of how wrong I was on something I surmise in the book of Revelation about this, you're unbiblical I'm biblical, but there are some things in the Bible that are not quite clear and if you've ever read the book of Revelation you know exactly what I'm talking about So, and I would always say, if you've ever sat under my teaching, I'll always say now look, it doesn't say it here, but I surmise that this is what's going on, I could be wrong sometimes I say I doubt it but sometimes I could be wrong so it's, it's really the legalistic ones are going, oh, not biblical. You're not biblical. I had a guy leave the church one time because he said, you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Of all things to accuse me of, you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. He freaked out, stormed out, left, took all the people he brought with him. He was from Metropolitan Baptist Church. And, uh, okay, I mean, how accuse me of something real, but not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Come on. Um, legalistic, and that's that's really what that is. You, you get those people that, even though you're biblical, they don't think you're biblical. The German princes wanted to unite with the Swiss against the common Catholic threat and urged Luther and Zwingli to unite in their movements, In from Zurich and from Saxony. They agreed on all the issues, Zwingli's issues, Luther's issues, except the Lord's Supper. So they made their way over to Marburg, Marburg, Germany, where they went into a castle. I have been there, visited this beautiful, amazing castle where they had this debate. Everyone we went to within the castle had no idea what we were talking about when we said what room did Luther and Zwingli debate in. Had no idea. No one. I thought, that's odd. I thought Germans knew everything anyway. But they didn't know. So we went throughout this wonderful castle. But this is where they have their debate, in Marburg. Luther started by saying that the words, Jesus saying this, this is my body, must mean that the bread is Jesus' body. This is what Luther says, because this is what Jesus says. He says, "I cannot understand them in any other way than according to their literal meaning." Zwingli said. He countered, "The matter under consideration considers that Holy Scripture frequently employs figurative speech, metaphors, metonymies, and the like." John is Elijah from Matthew eleven fourteen. The rock was Christ, First Corinthians ten four. I am the vine, Jesus said, John fifteen one. The seed is the word of God in Luke eight eleven. Does he make make a good case? Yeah. Jesus says, this is my body, but he also says, I am the vine. He also says, I am the door. Is Jesus a door? Is Jesus a vine? Is Jesus bread? He's the gate. And here's just a picture of the castle. Here's us having dinner there in the, the square there in Marburg. But that's the castle, beautiful place. After Marburg, uh, they could never come to a agreement uh, Luther led the Reformation in Saxony for 16 years. After Marburg, he died at the age of 62. Zwingli was killed in a battle, as I said earlier, with the Catholics, two years after the Marburg debates. And John Calvin became the leader of the Swiss Reformation, called the Reform Movement. So they never came together. And when you read, I didn't put it all on the slides um, as to how uh, Luther argued back with Zwingli, but you're, you read, if, I do, I won't speak for you, but when I read Luther arguing with Zwingli, I'm going, Luther come on now. I mean, Zwingli made some great and wonderful arguments. And all, Luther really had no no desire whatsoever to reach across the table and say, look, let's agree to disagree and be brothers. Luther did not like him. Don't know why, but he, he, maybe he just got up on the wrong side of the bed that day. But that, that debate went down as the division between Zurich and Germany. Lutheran and Reformed remained separate. Lutheranism in Saxony, in Saxony and the reform movement in Switzerland continued as two separate Protestant movements. That's yeah, a shame. You're already seeing that the beginnings of, of denominationalism within Protestant, Protestant faith. Happened early on. One called Lutheran, one called Reformed. Meanwhile in France, now this is a couple of years later, um, John Calvin is a contemporary of Zwingli and Luther, but he's about uh, 15 years younger. He was a French lawyer Uh, And he had turned theologian. At the University of Paris, he wrote a speech filled with allusions to Luther's ideas. In 1534, he was forced to flee France for Switzerland, desiring to land in Strasbourg. That's where he had his heart on. That's where he thought God was leading him. He wanted to go sit in Strasbourg, study, write, and be the scholar that he was. Luther was was a guy, as we saw last week, liked to drink a little bit of beer like to have fun, sing songs, probably laughed. You'd probably really enjoy Martin Luther's company. John Calvin, a total stoic. Didn't laugh, just straight-laced, very quiet, very humble man. Uh, nothing like Luther. Their personalities differed greatly. Um, you can find wonderful things in both men. Both men were great men of God. Uh, unfortunately, John Calvin could be the most misunderstood guy uh, on the planet. In Protestant churches today, um, to call yourself a Calvinist today means that you don't think that uh, you have free will. Uh, but that's completely wrong. You've been misinformed if that's what you've been taught. John Calvin believed what he believed about predestination simply because he read it in the Bible. Same thing Luther believed. Same 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 thing Zwingli believed. Same thing everyone believes when they read the Bible. It's in the Bible. It doesn't matter what John Calvin thinks. John Calvin was a biblicist, uh, wrote voluminous volumes everywhere of verse by verse Here's what the Bible says, here's what the Bible means. Uh, He is a wonderful scholar. Uh, And I tell you that because uh, I want you to love John Calvin because you will cheat yourself out of one of the greatest men who ever lived by having some preformed idea about him uh, that you don't like. More moderate than Zwingli, seen in his work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin systematized Reformed theology, which later spread throughout Europe. He was more responsible for that. He was in Geneva, Switzerland, fleeing France on his way to find a place of study in Strasbourg, as I said. Uh, William Farrell, this uh, man who was about 20 years older than Calvin, was in uh, Geneva. And he got wind that Calvin had come in and found a place to stay. He was going to spend the night for the night. And he convinced him to minister in Geneva with him. In fact, he told uh, Calvin when he came to Calvin, introduced himself. Calvin was very well known to William Farrell at the time. And Farrell said, come help me with the Reformation here in Geneva. Calvin said, I'm going to Strasbourg. I'm a scholar. I just want to go sit back. And uh, uh, Farrell is reported to say, damn you in your studies. May God damn you in your studies. Come here and help in the Reformation in Geneva. We need you. And this awakened Luther or uh, um, Calvin to say, okay, since you put it that way. <laughs> he spent the rest of his life in Geneva, except the two years where he was kicked out of Geneva and did go to Strasbourg. Here's William Farrell. He, it, Geneva, Switzerland at the time was an immoral city when Farrell came to preach there. Uh, John Calvin was a law student from the University of Paris, and he was fleeing from Paris. Um, Farrell wouldn't take no for an answer, telling Calvin, curse your studies. So on May 21st, 1536, the citizens of Geneva pledged to live by the word of God, abandon idolatry, and provide free education for all children in Geneva. Note, again, the church and the state are one. So for Calvin to stay in Geneva... He becomes part of the government. The moral laws, the biblical teachings that he's going to give, that's going to be connected to the government. It's not just a, a curfew at night because the, the state says you need to get in before midnight. It's not just don't speed. You know, in those days it wouldn't be, it'd be don't walk too fast. Uh, but whatever the government says, the church says too. The church's laws are the state's laws. State's laws are the church's laws. And Calvin is going to be a part of that, as is William Farrell. And this is what they're going to do. It's going to be illegal uh, to not live by the word of God. You're pledged to leave the word of God, to abandon idolatry of all kinds, and for free education for all the children there. The city councils offered Calvin the professor of sacred scriptures, and he accepted in Geneva. He prepared a confession of faith to be accepted by all who wished to be citizens, Plan for an educational program for all. So put it this way, like when we started this church, we put together a doctrinal statement. You have to do that for the IRS. Here's who we are, bylaws, here's what we believe. Those bylaws, if we weren't in the United States, that would be the law of, if we had a little, if we owned, you know, all of Cyprus per se, that that would be, and I was, I came in, this is, these are our bylaws, this is a doctrinal statement. That doctrinal statement would rule the entire city, not just our church. So that's what he's done. That's what he's prepared this confession of faith uh, to be accepted by all who wish to be a citizen and planned an educational program for all. He insisted on expulsion from the Lord's Supper for those whose lives did not conform to spiritual standards. Uh, And that he did. Now, this irked a lot of people because people still believed, even in the Protestant Reformation, that I need to take the Lord's Supper if I'm saved. If I don't take it, I might not be saved. Uh, About 150 years later, um, a guy in our country did the same thing. One of the greatest preachers in the history of the world. Do you know his name? He told the congregation, if you're not living right and you're not a Christian, you can't partake of the Lord's Supper. Same as Jonathan Edwards, the greatest preacher in the world, and he got fired for it. Uh, and it, I would say the same thing. And I, I tell people, look, if you're not a believer, this is not for you. If you're living in sin, this is not for you. Don't do it. You would be eating judgment upon yourself. They got fired for it in those days. The church looked into sins like adultery. Prostitution, homosexuality, drunkenness, fighting, stealing, lying, cursing, gambling, materialism, wearing of jewelry, hairstyles, eating extravagant food. Ouch. Obscene or heretical books, obscene songs, theatrical performances, Catholic worship of saints. This is what the church does. If you're living in Geneva, you better clean your nose. The city council forbade them to exclude anyone from taking communion. Calvin would not capitulate. On Easter 1538, they refused communion to willful, willful sinners in the church gathering. Both Farrell and Calvin were forced to flee the city. Calvin went to Strasbourg, where he finally settled from 1538 to 1541, pastoring a French refugee congregation, where he had always wanted to be anyway. And he married a widow there, who died in 1549. He loved her dearly. Um, when Geneva realized that uh, they missed their pastors, they called him back. Supporters of Calvin and Geneva called him back after the government fell. He said, there is no place under heaven that I am more afraid of. But he returned anyway. He loved Strasbourg. It's where he wanted to be. And he got that tug. I'm supposed to go back. I have to go back. And so he did. <clears throat> His ideas were eventually put into practice. And Geneva was once again a beautiful place. Under Calvin's ministry, Geneva became a model of Christian purity, as you can imagine. As long as if they're abiding by John Calvin's doctrine here, These are conservative Christians abiding by the Bible, following Christ. John Knox was with Calvin for a good while there in Geneva. He called Geneva the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on the earth since the days of the apostles. I want John Calvin to be president. How many of you have read? I'm going to give you a star if you've read Calvin's Institutes. All of it. It's that thick. That thick. You get a star. I mean, I will give you a star excuse me no and they're very small print too it'd be great if it was big letters wouldn't it (laughs) in Switzerland Calvin wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion the first systematic summary of Protestant theology it's a a systematic theology it goes through every system of theology in the Bible a uh, central theme of the Institutes is the knowledge of God And Calvin believed the church must influence the state and that resistance to tyrannical monarchs is a given so he wasn't, a, he wasn't a part of the state just to do what the state says. He was going to be a part of Geneva, a part of those, part of the governing authorities insofar as they were listening to God's word and putting themselves in submission to God's word where he could actually lead them. And I would say the same thing about being a pastor of this church. Uh, I, will not, I wouldn't stay at this church if people weren't going to put themselves under the, the leadership of the church, put themselves under the bylaws of the church. That's why we make you uh, give your testimony, read the bylaws, check off. Yeah, that's we're, we We... We've read them, we believe them, we're in them. We don't make you sign your blood in it or anything or or sign a covenant. It's just we read it, we're putting ourselves under that. I'm not going to be a pastor of a church where where people aren't going to do that. Uh, And that's what uh, Calvin was in Geneva. Now, there's really no Calvin versus Luther. I should have put Calvin and Luther. Luther believed in the justification by faith alone. We do too. The miracle of God's forgiveness. He was a peasant, he was a monk, and he was a university professor. Calvin was a big pusher of the sovereignty of God. He believed in justification by faith, too, of course. He, was a, he pushed the assurance and impregnability of God's purpose. He was a scholar. He was a lawyer. And he was flourishing in a business community. So they were different. Uh, and they pushed different things. And you'll find that about pastors. I mean, if you ever come to uh, a church, there are some churches that their entire doctrine revolves around the end times. All they ever talk about is the end times. You ever seen one of these churches? everything's about the end times we just finished the study of the end times we're going to start the book of revelation now we're going to start the book of, we're going to go through the end times prophecies in ezekiel you know going all right can you move on to something else or just christians if that's all they ever want to talk about uh find a christian that always wants to talk about the trinity that, that that's one that's serious about their faith or about the inerrancy of the bible or about the the uh the deity of jesus christ Um, Some have that. I'm not sure what mine is. I know mine used to be the purity of Scripture and beware of false teachers. But, you know, when you're constantly talking about false teachers, you know, it's time to be a true preacher and preach the truth at some point. So I don't know if I'm balanced or not, but uh, I I definitely like to push justification by faith. You know that I'm a big sovereignty of God guy. It's one of the reasons I love Calvin and learned it from Calvin. Uh, So uh, I appreciate all these things about about these, these men. Two different men with the same doctrine emphasizing different solutions. Uh, as you'll find in in any two churches or two pastors being compared. In general, Reformed theology, uh, what we call Reformed theology, accepted most of the propositions that Luther had put forth, but insisted more on the process of sanctification that is the necessary result of justification. So, So Reformed theology, that's what we believe, is that we are saved by God's grace through faith. We are justified. If you were a kid you know, if you were a kid, when you were a child. When I was a child, I learned what justification was by my teacher telling us it means just spread out the word and say, it. if God justified you, it means that you were, it's just as if you had never sinned, Justify, Justice. so God made me as if I had never sinned, that's what justification uh, by faith is. By faith, I believe, and it's just as if I never sinned, even though I have, obviously, uh, that's Justification. Reformed theology came and said, "Yes, we believe that too. But once a person is saved, there's a progressive nature of their growing in their faith. We are born again. What does a baby look like? I mean, the baby is a baby. They're born and they grow. And the same is true with Christians. We are born again. We're new Christians. We're infants in Christ, and there's a process of sanctification. And as a scholar, the scholar that that Luther that uh, Calvin was, he was." He would teach on things like that. As we teach here, is to grow in your faith, go to the next level, go do this. You're not doing this. Do that. You haven't repented of this. Repent of this. Uh, and so that that's the little difference between Lutheranism and and uh, sanctification, or uh, I should say, of Reformed theology. Then maybe not so much now, but it was then. To that end, Reformed theologians declared that lo- declared that the law, along with being a guide to the Jewish people, the law of God of the Old Testament is an instrument to convict everyone of sin. But it has a third use, namely to guide Christians and Christian nations in their personal and corporate lives. That's what the law does, the law, the moral law. Now note, in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there's a lot of laws in there, strange laws. I mean, one of which is that I always bring up is that you can't mix two kinds of fabric. You can't have a 50% cotton, 50% polyester shirt. That, that, is that a sin? Does God care about that? Well, with Israel, there was a point to it, but no, that's not a sin. So we might say, well, that's, we, don't, we don't worry with that, although that's in the Bible. But when the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery, we go with that. Or in the modern day, people will say, you Christians, you always want to quote the Old Testament when it says homosexuality is wrong, but you don't make a big deal. You tat, tattooed up Christians about where it says you shouldn't get tattoos. So are we picking and choosing in, in the Old Testament? Well, there's different kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Make sure you note this. There are ceremonial and civil laws that, were, that basically were for Israel and their temple. You take the temple out and the priesthood, those laws go with it. Those laws are only applicable to Israel while there's a temple, while there's a nation and a temple. <clears throat> when those are gone, the food laws. What about those food laws? Well, Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. He declared all foods clean. Excuse me. So with the declaration of all foods clean, and with those civil laws gone because Israel has no temple, and they have no central worship there of God, the only thing left is what we call the moral law, comprised of the Ten Commandments. Those are the laws that never go away. They, they always have, always will, and can't not depict the character of our God. Those stick. And so that's the law. Those are the laws that are timeless and or here in the third one, it's to guide Christians and Christian nations in their personal and corporate lives. We're not driven by thou shalt not have tattoos. We're not driven by you can't eat shellfish. We're not driven by not being able to mix two fabrics together. We are driven, however, by the moral law, which never goes away. So two important notes about Calvinism. Number one, the belief that the church should seek the sanctification of society through right doctrine. The church should seek this. We want people to behave rightly, and we're doing it through right doctrine. We try to do it here by teaching right doctrine. It, first of all, first and foremost, should permeate the minds of God's people, and then go out into the world and hopefully change the world. That's what we're after. That's what we do. And then the doctrines of grace, called the tulip. You know the tulip, right? This is where most people go, uh, oh, we're out of here. But all five points are so biblical. If you don't like these, you don't like the Bible. Number one, the idea that man is totally depraved, that God's the only way that he can save because we're totally depraved is to elect some unconditionally, that the atonement of Jesus Christ is limited to the elect, that God's grace is irresistible upon the elect, and the perseverance of the saints is that God's true people will persevere in their faith to the day they die. The tulip, T-U-L-I-P. So the spread of Calvinism then for spread to the first to the Dutch Reformed there in Holland, uh, the Huguenots in France, uh, to the Puritans in England, to the Presbyterians in Scotland. And so when we look at these five points, these Calvinistic points, let's take a look at them just uh, quickly before we go tonight. You with me? All right, good. Number one, unsaved man is incapable of choosing or doing good. If left alone, he will never seek God. That would come from things like Romans chapter 3, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. There's no one who does good. No, not one. No one who seeks after God. No, not one. Unsaved man is incapable of choosing and doing good. If left alone, he will never seek God. Number two, in the you, before creation, God chose his own by his grace apart from merit. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4, 5, following, verse 7, 13 and 14. We read it in Romans 8, read it in Romans 9, read it in the Old Testament, that before the creation, before the foundation of the world, God chose those who would be saved before we were ever born, before he even created the earth. Number three, that Christ's death, though sufficient to save all, if God so choose, is only efficient enough to save the elect that God chose, the limited atonement. And that God draws his elect to Christ, the elect never resists his summons. I shouldn't put never because there are many people who are elect who resist, 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 resist. And at the end of their lives do. Because if you convert to Christ, no one converts to Christ who are not part of the elect. So if you are a Christian, you are the elect of God. Now, you look at your own life and you think, well, you know what? I, I should have come to Christ when I was eight years old. My mama was trying to teach me to know Christ. But I didn't come until I was 38 years old after I lived and sowed all my wild oats and blah, blah, blah. And I wish I just would have listened to mama. That's kicking against the goads. Uh, it's to your own detriment. Uh, but God's elect will not resist him ultimately. And the salvation is initiated by God. And because God finishes what God started, uh, then he will complete it at the end. And so we look at this as total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. You know, people will say it's hard to understand. You know, it's really not. It's not hard to understand. The Trinity is hard to understand. This is just hard to, what, accept. We don't like it. This is not what we were taught. We grew up Baptist. grew up something else. We didn't like. We were told not to like this. This is of John Calvin. This is not the Bible. Everything is from the Bible here. We don't like it. It's not as hard to understand. What's hard to understand? Before the foundation of the world, God chose some to be saved and didn't choose everyone. may not like it, but that's not hard to understand. Anyone can understand that. It's accepting it. But you've got a problem if you can't accept it. You either accept what God has said or you don't. And too many people are comfortable accepting their own ideas and rejecting God. So, this Calvinism-Arminianism debate, Jacob Arminius was a Dutch Christians studying at the Geneva Academy. He believed much of what John Calvin believed, but after he finished his studies, he returned to Holland as a pastor and later professor of the University of Leiden. Arminius taught that the Genevan formulation of double predestination was too rigid and taught a milder form, which is interesting. John Calvin never taught double predestination. If you ask what is double predestination, God predestines those whom he chooses to be saved. He does not choose the rest to go to hell. That's double predestination. That is not the antithesis, that is not the logical um, side B of, of predestination. Note this, I've told you this before, but just follow along. We're all sinners, are we not? And the wages of sin is death. And that would be God's justice, we all deserve it. So imagine we're all falling from an airplane. We've been dumped out because we're all sinners, and that's our death penalty. We're all falling to our death. We deserve it. We're sinners. Wages of sin is death. God in his grace reaches out his big loving hand and saves some because he chooses to. Brings us back into his bosom. The rest fall. Did he choose for them to fall? No. They're sinners. They deserve it. All sinners do. Did those that got saved deserve to be saved? Not at all. That's God's grace. So at the end of time, God will be glorified for his grace and his justice. He didn't choose that they go to hell. We chose to go to hell. We sinned. God reached in and by grace saved some. So what Arminius railed against was never anything Calvin nor the Bible says. So as the debate raged after Arminius' death, one of his disciples, Simon Episcopus, formed Arminius's Arminius You get the point. His teaching into his five-point system. Now, this was in sixteen twenty two, about sixty years after John Calvin's death. And so these are the Arminian points. By the way, the Arminian points were first. The Calvinistic points came later. Uh, And Arminius believed that man can do nothing truly good until he is born again through the Holy Spirit. The eternal decree of salvation refers to those who shall believe and persevere in the faith. That Christ died for all men. Believers will benefit from this atonement. That God uses the Holy Spirit to draw men to himself, but men readily refuse him. That a Christian is assisted by grace and kept from falling if he desires Christ's help. Calvin's followers organized his five points, those five points. So, in other words, Jacob Arminius didn't form five points, and John Calvin didn't form counterpoints. It was their followers that did that. Not that there's anything wrong with it. His followers formed five counterpoints. These are the famous tulip that we looked at. And that's just too small a print for me to reread. Last slide. Um, And we'll look at this next week, the the English Reformation, which is uh, always fun. Soon after Luther's 95 theses were published, his books were smuggled into England. Think about that. His books are smuggled into England. A group of reformers formed at Cambridge University, and England was still Catholic at this time, and we'll look at what happened when the Reformation got there. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. Thank you for the time that you give us. Uh, in this case the study of church history to look at the way doctrines have come together to see how you have uh, preserved your word and kept it for us and seeing that we, we look, and look back and see people that we share a great commonality with people that wanted to know what does the Bible say uh, I pray that we would be those people today uh, maintaining the Reformation in this country in our own neighborhoods of what does the Bible say may we be full of grace and mercy towards those who do not believe as we do May we show them the love of Christ, but may we be firm in our faith as the Reformers were. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Walde, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.